The series we are in is called Pressure. Uh, we are studying 1 Samuel and looking at some high-stress situations that King Saul was in, and we can learn from this how to deal with pressure in a godly way. Last week it was pressure without panic, and today we come to one of the most familiar stories in the Bible, David and Goliath. Uh, but there is a far more important lesson for us to learn here than being inspired to face our giants, whatever they might be. Because when you are under pressure, one of the reactions is paralysis. Uh, you freeze. Uh, fear traps you, and you don't do anything. That's what happens to King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Faced with a giant problem, he freezes. Uh, so um, I, I want us to go through this story and then gather some fresh insights for what God has to teach us. Uh, the situation is that Israel is again being threatened by the Philistines. And uh, let me show you a, a map here of uh, ancient uh, Israel area. And on the coast is where the, the great five Philistine cities were in Philistia. And uh, the Israelites were more inland in a mountainous region. Uh, the uh, Philistines were, when we come into First uh, Samuel 17, they are moving inland to attack uh, Israel uh, in the area of Bethlehem. King Saul mobilizes his troops and uh, they come down out of the mountains and meet uh, the Philistines uh, where each one is on an opposite hillside and the valley of Allah is, between, is in between. Interestingly, just in the last 24 hours, in this same area, uh, the Gaza area, the Gaza Strip, uh, 430 rockets have been launched from that Gaza area into Israel, killing several people. So this is still an area of conflict today, uh, but this was going on uh, several thousand years ago. Uh, as we uh, pick up the story, uh, verse 4, then a champion came out of the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath whose height was six cubits and a span. So Goliath was the enemy's MVP, most valuable Philistine. He was a champion. His height is in cubits. We don't know what a cubit is uh, in our common language, but it's 18 inches approximately. A span is nine inches. Uh, and uh, there are textual variations here. Some manuscripts, including the Dead Sea Scrolls, say that uh, he was four cubits and a span. So let me measure that for you. Either Goliath was six foot nine or he was nine feet nine inches tall. And the average uh, height of an Israelite male in that day was five feet n six inches, so uh, he was significantly taller either way. I prefer the reading that Goliath was nearly ten feet tall. I, I prefer that for a variety of reasons. One is, the Bible talks about Gath, where Goliath is from, as a place where a family of giant-sized people live. Uh, also, the descriptions of Goliath here indicate some physical challenges that suggest gigantism or an abnormal pituitary gland, uh, suggesting a more extreme size. Uh, the tallest man in modern history was Robert Wadlow from Illinois, who was just under nine feet tall and still growing when he died in his 20s. But however tall Goliath was, uh, he towered over everyone in his world. And he was an experienced champion, a warrior from his youth. The word champion, by the way, is made up of three Hebrew words. It's a phrase that literally means man between two. 
Uh, the idea is that Goliath was an individual who fought to the death in representative combat, one-on-one uh, between the two armies. And, and so any previous fights that Goliath had been involved in resulted in the death of his opponent, uh, opponent so he was the champion. In verses 5 to 7, we have a, a, a very detailed description of Goliath, that he was covered from head to toe uh, in armor that weighed 150 pounds, that he carried three weapons, a javelin, a sword, a spear. Uh, the Bible says the spear had an iron point that weighed 15 pounds. Goliath also had a shield, but he had a shield bearer. A guy who walked in front of him carried that shield as Goliath lumbered toward the Israelis. And then we read in verse 8, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. So Goliath bellows this challenge. He is the Philistine. Notice that. The top guy, their prototypical warrior. And notice he identifies the Israelites as Saul's servants. That's also significant. And the challenge is for Israel's top warrior to face the giant by coming to him, coming down to him in close combat. Verse 11 When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So no one steps forward. The Israeli army freezes in fear, even King Saul. They are dismayed, which means they're shattered. They go to pieces. They're terrified. They're in awe. They're psyched out. Uh, And Saul, I believe, is probably at a clinical breaking point for stress and pressure at this moment. Why? Well, uh, there's a lot of reasons. One is, this is his responsibility. He's the biggest Israelite, head and shoulders taller than everyone else. He is now an experienced warrior, more impressive than his countrymen. He's the commander-in-chief of the army. Uh, but Saul does not move. And he's at a clinical breaking point because uh, his relationship with God is now damaged by his past disobedience. Samuel the prophet, we saw last week, told Saul his kingdom would not last and that that kingdom would be given to a man after God's own heart, which Saul was not. And Saul's entire reign, the Bible says, was filled with bitter warfare. Uh, He required music to soothe his, his heart, his soul, his mind. And now faced with this challenge, Saul shuts down. Uh, I wonder, have you faced situations filled with so much stress that you didn't know what to do? Where you were fearful of failure, where you were uh, fearful of confrontation, of loss, and so you procrastinated, or you avoided, or you froze. Well, uh, it gets worse because verse 16 tells us Goliath issued this same challenge twice a day for nearly six weeks. And for all 40 days of those challenges, Saul sat in his tent paralyzed with fear. Dr. Robert Kriegel says, Uh, There are four steps to handling pressure. These are unbiblical steps, all right? Uh, Number one, measure the difficulty. Number two, rate the difficulty. Number three, rate your ability. Number four, imagine the worst. Again, these are unbiblical steps, but Saul followed every single one of them. And uh, it's exactly what he does. He says, this guy is bigger and better than me. I'll get crushed like a one-legged cockroach. I can't do it. He's paralyzed, and his entire army is frozen with him in fear. And then David shows up. David, uh, just there to deliver food to his three older brothers who are serving in the armed forces. He's sent there by his dad to deliver this food. Now, since males had to be at least 20 years of age 
to be in the military. David is not 20. He is still a teenager, so he's probably somewhere between 16 and 19 years old. And when David arrives, Goliath issues his daily challenge. David is there to witness it. And everybody hears it, verse 24. When all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. So this apparently is, now just the sight of Goliath sends the soldiers scurrying off. Not a particularly effective battle strategy. And David witnesses this, can't believe it. Uh, He saw this as a disgrace. He interprets the situation that everybody is being afraid far differently than all of the rest. He says, verse 26, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? So, um... There's no mention, by the way, of the size of the enemy here in what David says. Instead, he declares, David does his identity in God, of his God, the identity of his people, the uh, questions, the identity of his enemy. And David's elder brother, Eliab, is there to hear David, and, and he gets mad at David. He sees David as a, an, an arrogant troublemaker, and he attacks David's motivations. But David just keeps asking that that question about the situation. And word gets to King Saul that somebody is interested in facing this Goliath, this enemy. And uh, so Saul sends for David. And when Saul sees David, he says, well, you're not able to do this. You're just an inexperienced teenager. And the Philistine is an enormous seasoned warrior. You can't do this. And David responds, and uh, everything he says is about God front and center. David says this, Verse 37, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you. I like that part. So David credits God with protecting him in the past as he's simply a shepherd uh, caring for his sheep in these dangerous situations. And so he now trusts the Lord to continue to be faithful now. And that's good enough for Saul. Uh, And to help him, in the very next verse, he dresses David in his own armor, gives him his helmet and his sword, which, by the way, means that David was not small himself. All right? you got to understand that. Saul's a big guy, and he's at least close to King Saul's size, or it would have been even more ridiculous to put him in his armor. But David says, I, don't, I haven't trained in this. I'm inexperienced with this. I can't maneuver in this. And, and he refuses the armor and the sword, takes it all off, picks up his shepherd stick, puts five smooth stones in a shepherd's bag, grabs his sling, and goes down to face Goliath. And when the giant sees that David is just a young man, he expresses great contempt. He says in verse 43, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine also said to David, Come to me, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. Uh, um, some of you are familiar with Malcolm Gladwell's, Malcolm Gladwell's book. I've read a number of his books. This one's David and Goliath. It's uh, just using David and Goliath as a springboard to talk about other things. But uh, Gladwell has some interesting insights. He says there are signs in the story that Goliath suffers from a disease that causes an overproduction of a human growth hormone. And that's what created his extraordinary size. But he says there are side effects in this disease that cause vision problems. And that's why, uh, Gladwell says, um, Goliath basically has somebody to lead him into the valley. That's his, uh, uh, his shield bearer. Uh, and he moves slowly because the world is a blur. And he accuses David of coming at him with sticks, 
plural, when there's only one stick, because Goliath sees at least double. And he calls David to come to him multiple times, uh, because he, he couldn't locate David otherwise, uh, according to Gladwell. And so he doesn't see that David has changed the rules and isn't planning hand-to-hand combat. Goliath was too big and slow and blurry-eyed to comprehend the way the tables had turned. And I think there's some truth to that. Verse 45, then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Well, there's a lot of setup lead into this battle, but in the text, the battle is over in seconds, in just a few words. David runs quickly toward Goliath, and as he runs, he puts a stone in his sling and slings it so that it penetrates the enemy's forehead. He never gets really close to him, and Goliath falls face down. Uh, by the way, slinging stones in that day were about the size of a tennis ball. They weighed a pound each, could be projected at speeds between 100 and 150 miles an hour. And the book of Judges tells us that the tribe of Benjamin had 700 expert left-handed slingers who could sling a stone at a hair, that's not a rabbit, a hair and not miss. Uh, one historian said that Goliath had no more chance than if David had been armed with a 45 automatic. That's how deadly these things were. And so with the giant on the ground, uh, David takes Goliath's sword, cuts off his head. This causes a general panic among the Philistine army. They start running away. The Israeli uh, soldiers start yelling and run after them. Now, there are a lot of neat morals that you can take from this story, like triumphing over overwhelming odds, uh, facing your giants, not judging by appearances, don't bring a knife to a gunfight, uh, the bigger they are, the harder they fall, uh, victory of the underdog. But there's a far more crucial theme that I do not want you to miss. This story is a contrast between two people, and those two people are not Goliath and David. Those two people are Saul and David. And whether you are young or old, male or female, cowardly or courageous, big or small, believing or unbelieving, you are one of those two people. What was the difference between Saul and David? The text tells us very clearly, in the few verses before Goliath ever shows up, chapter 16, here's the difference. Verse 13, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David with power. Next verse, 14, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. There's the difference. One was filled with the Spirit and the other was not. Now let me affirm for you that when you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then the Bible says you are saved. Your sins are forgiven. You have a new identity, a new future, a new purpose in life. And when you believe, the moment you believe, God sets his seal of ownership upon you by putting the Holy Spirit of God in you. The Holy Spirit of God comes to live in you, 2 Corinthians 1.22. And the Spirit guarantees all that God has said, all his promises are true. You are now a temple of the living God. So if your trust is in Jesus, you individually are a temple of God. Uh, No building is a holy place. You are a holy place. And the gathered people of God all together are a temple of God, a holy place. 
And the Spirit marks you as belonging to the Lord, and He will never abandon you. The Spirit of God produces good things in you, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The Spirit encourages you. The Spirit equips you. The Spirit empowers you. But the reality is that you can stop letting the Spirit do that in your life. That you as a believer, the Spirit won't leave you, but you can stop letting the Spirit control you. That's why Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk, instead be filled with the Spirit. So don't let other spirits control you. Instead, be controlled by the Spirit of God. And when you fail to be filled with the Spirit, and that's a command to be filled, so that's something that you can do, uh, when you fail to do so, then pressure and anxiety will push you into panic or to paralysis. You'll either actively do something against God's will, or you will passively fail to act on God's will. Uh, so the contrast here between Saul and David is the difference between a person controlled by the Holy Spirit and one who is not. So let me give you five signs that you are spirit-filled when under pressure. Five, from this text, five signs you're spirit-filled when you're under pressure. The first sign is that you're not immobilized by fear. Saul and David looked at the same situation. Saul froze. Israel's terrified. David acted. When you allow the Spirit of God to work in your life, pressure will not paralyze you. It won't cause you to be indecisive. It won't push you into hiding or avoidance. How do I know that? 2 Timothy 1.7 says that God did not give you a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So when you allow the Spirit of God to control your life, you will stop cowering, you will refuse to be intimidated, you will stand up to your fears. It, it might be as simple as that there's a difficult conversation that you are avoiding right now. It could be something like this. Let me give you an idea. You've got a church friend who complains constantly. She's always negative. She can be very critical of other people, and sometimes it borders into gossip. And when she gets like that, it makes you cringe on the inside. But you sort of just smile weakly and nod slightly and, and hope it stops. And you've said nothing because you're afraid that then she'll just talk about you. And you want someone, you want the pastor to address this. The pastor needs to do something about this. Even though it's your friend, he doesn't know anything about it and don't tell him about it. But uh, by the Spirit's power, you can and should do that. You can speak the truth lovingly and point out that negativity to your friend and encourage your friend to do what's right. And the Spirit gives you power to do that. Uh, second, uh, when sign your spirit filled under pressure is that you protect God's name above your name. Uh, King Saul tried to motivate his troops by appealing to their desire for money and power. Uh, he off, verse 25, he offered a reward in cash to whoever took on the giant along with his own daughter in marriage and a tax-free life. Okay, so big stuff. And so... Uh, Whoever would face Goliath, he said, this is what I'll give you. So he turned the battle for God's honor into a battle of self-interest. But when David heard the Philistine defy the living God, it made him angry. Goliath's taunts disrespected God. And when nobody stepped up to defend God's honor, David found that intolerable. David made God's honor a priority. And sometimes we fail to look fear in the face because we don't care enough about honoring God. 
There may be a stand that you need to take in your home. There may may be a stand that you need to take at work or school, among your family, among your friends. Uh, And you're not doing that because the Spirit of God is not filling you. When you allow the Spirit to control your life, your desire for God's glory will overshadow your own self-interest. Third sign your spirit filled under pressure. You assess theologically, not materialistically. Saul looked at Goliath and he reasoned, my training, my size, my strength, my ability are no match for this giant. I'm not equal to the challenge. I'm going to stay in my tent. So he evaluated materialistically. David saw things theologically. Repeatedly, David said, the Lord will win this battle. This is for the Lord, David said. Now, when you are not controlled by the Spirit of God, you will judge based only on the physical. You will judge based on what's visible, how you evaluate it. Your assessment of the situation is then incomplete. No solution looks possible because you've left out the possibility of God's wisdom and his intervention. And so you believe that the the relationship is finished. You believe that the job market is closed that the deficit is too large, that the temptation is too great, that the decision is too risky, and forgiveness is impossible. But for those who belong to Jesus, Galatians 5.25 urges us to keep in step with the Spirit. So when you allow the Spirit to guide you, you won't lose sight of God. Uh, Maybe you have a loved one who died, and it's crippled you. Months go by, and you feel frozen in grief. You're paralyzed by the loss, by the fear, and you can't function. You're constantly reminded that you're now alone. But when you allow the Spirit of God to control your life, then the God of all comfort will overpower that grief and comfort you in your grief. Maybe you're a parent, and you know that your teenager is sexually active, but you say nothing. When you allow the Spirit of God to control your life, your view of God's holiness will overwhelm the giant of cultural values. Uh, maybe you're a senior on a fixed income, and, and as health care co- costs continue to skyrocket, you worry that if you get sick, you can't possibly survive. And so you clutch your checkbook, you're paralyzed over what to do next. But when you allow the Spirit of God to control your life, the Lord, your provider, will overshadow the giant of fear. Uh, fourth sign your spirit filled under pressure is that you use the gifts God has given Uh, Saul had abilities, responsibilities, and resources he refused to use. Let me share some of them with you. Chapter 8, verse 20, Israel said, we want a king to fight for us and to go first into battle. That's what they want in their king, somebody who goes first into battle. What does Saul do? He hides in his tent. Uh, Chapter 10, verse 23, tells us Saul was taller than all the other Israelites. So physically, he's the one that should go out and fight the giant. What did Saul do? He offered a reward to anybody who would be willing to go out and fight the giant. Uh, Chapter 13, verse 22, tells us that while his army lacked actual weapons, Saul had a proper sword. What did he do with that proper sword? Tried to give it to David to use. Uh, and, And what about the special skill of slinging that David used to kill the giant? The tribe of Benjamin were known experts with slings. Judges 20, 1 Chronicles 12, 2 tells us that. And guess who was a Benjamite? Saul. He doesn't even use that that military weapon which he is well familiar with. Using that gift doesn't cross his mind. Now when you belong to Jesus, you've been given one or more spiritual gifts for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. 
Building up the church. And that's in addition to whatever other natural talents and abilities and resources God has blessed you with. And when you fail to use those gifts, when you ignore those gifts, when you retire those gifts, when you downplay the fact that God has a purpose for you in his church, you are not filled with the Spirit. When you allow the Spirit to control your life, he will empower you. He will equip you to use your gifts for building up the body of Christ. Fifth sign, your spirit filled under pressure is that you see what others cannot. Saul, without the Spirit, could only see the physical threat. David, with the Spirit, had a vision for the power of God. Old Testament scholar Bill Arnold said that David had divinely guided insight that others lacked. Because the Spirit of God was working in him, he saw things others did not see. And when the Spirit is controlling your life, you will understand things others will not. When the Spirit is not controlling your life, you will not understand the things of God. I know that. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that very thing. It says, The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He can't understand them because they're spiritually discerned. So without the Spirit of God filling you, you can't even understand things. You don't see things. When the Spirit of God controls you, God reveals His truth to you. He gives you His perspective. You see things His way. And I'm concerned, frankly, that many of you view our world through the lens of politics or through the lens of patriotism or through the lens of profit or through the lens of success or celebrity or reason rather than the Spirit of God. Uh, here's a reality. That when you are spirit-filled, giants fall. When you're spirit-filled, that's what happens. If you've put your trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God lives in you and will never leave, but you can choose not to obey God's Word. You can choose not to listen to His direction. You can choose not to surrender to His will, not to be under His control. That's why it's commanded that we be filled with that. And without the filling of the Holy Spirit, you will fail under pressure. You will panic or you will be paralyzed under pressure. Now, I do not have time this morning to define for you what it means or how to be filled with the Spirit. Uh, you should remember this book. We uh, invited you as a congregation to read this together called Spirit Walk by Stephen Smith. Uh, earlier this year, many of you did read that. I invite you to revisit that if you want to understand more about what it means or how to be filled with the Spirit of God. Uh, but, but I tell you, when that is true, when you are filled with God's Spirit, when you allow the Spirit of God to control you, then whatever bellowing belligerent giant you're faced with, it won't paralyze you. The giant may be garbage from your past. and You may doubt that God will forgive you. And I would say, be filled with the Spirit and get out of your tent. Maybe you've resigned yourself to the, the fact that the marriage is over and that's left you slumped over in resignation and regret. Be filled with the Spirit and get out of your tent. Maybe you're unemployed and the job search has been fruitless. You feel unwanted. You feel inadequate. You feel frozen in desperation and despair. Get out of your tent. If you've put your trust in Christ, your God is bigger than any giant. The, the scriptures say that the spirit of glory and of God lives in you. So let his spirit fill you and change you. A number of years ago, I went with a bunch of guys uh, on a uh, camping trip. We were uh, kayaking... Uh, uh, a river, and uh, we were going to spend two nights camping on islands in the middle of that river, uh, fishing along the way. We did this trip a, a, a few times. Well, the first night we were out, we pitched our tents uh, in the uh, middle of the river, and during the night, uh, uh, just a scary windstorm came up. Some of them says a tornado, those were the sissies, but there's, it was just a big windstorm. 
And, and for there's a couple tents just completely blew away. I mean, guys are sleeping one minute, next minute, they're just out in the elements like this. Now, when, when those tents blew away, what those guys who no longer had a tent over them realized was the kayaks were also airborne and leaving. And therefore, it, they had to go rescue those kayaks, and they, just to let you, they got them back or I wouldn't be here today. We would have been, I'd still be out there in the middle of that river. Having that tent disappear allowed them to see even greater danger and get them out of the tent. I would just pray this morning that may the wind of the Spirit blow away the tent that you're hiding in. Whatever that is. Because the Spirit of the Lord Almighty is stronger than any disease. And when you're Spirit-filled, those giants fall. Whatever it is, whatever that disease might be. The Spirit of the Lord Almighty is brighter than any darkness, wiser than, than any problem. Your God is more real than the fiercest enemy. He is your calm in the midst of the greatest storm. His love is inexhaustible. His grace is never-ending. His mercies are new every morning. So in the name of the Lord God Almighty, be spirit-filled and get out of your tent and give him glory.